Welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hello, everybody. This is Natalie Ray, guest host for the Into the Fire podcast, since our artistic director, Jerome Davis, is currently performing in London in Tally's Folly. Today, we have Sean Morin here to talk to us about um, some aspects of a great big woolly mammoth thawing from the ice, which is our current world premiere play that's performing right now. Sean, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role? Sure, thanks Natalie. So I am the collections manager here at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh. Um, I manage the collections of paleontology and geology here. So every time we acquire a new fossil that goes into our research collections or a new rock or mineral, I make sure that all of the data are associated with those specimens to make sure we don't lose, you know, who collected it, where it was collected, uh, the geologic context in which those were collected. Um, I am primarily a paleontologist by training. So I have um, a bachelor's in geology and a master's in geology. I am currently finishing up my PhD, um, which will be in zoology. Uh, my primary research is looking at fossil mammals from about 34 million years ago um, and trying to figure out how they were adapting to a major climate event when we go from this greenhouse world with no polar ice uh, to this ice house world of the last 34 million years where we start to see polar ice build up first in the southern hemisphere uh, and then later on during the Cenozoic in the northern hemisphere. Well, congratulations on uh, your yeah. history. Um, and yeah, that's really interesting to think about all of the um, sort of climate changes of the past um, compared to what we're living in right now. Um, so what what was the world like when mammoths roamed the earth? Tell us a little yeah. bit more about it. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, right? And I think you know, it gets into what is climate and how that differs from weather. So weather, you know, we're looking at these sort of daily temperatures and precipitation patterns and wind patterns. Climate is this much longer term average of all of those dozens and dozens of, of variables um, that sort of drive weather. Um, technically speaking, it's a 30 year average but when we're looking in the deep past, it's really hard to get down to those short windows of 30 years. So we're usually talking hundreds of years or even thousands of years or tens of thousands of years once we get further and further back. So I don't think it's any surprise that as we get closer to today, we have a much more complete record of climate. And as we go further back into the past, as we lose the rock record through destruction of rocks or burial of those rocks, it's a more uh, incomplete record of, of climate. So, so my, um, my expertise is, is really over the last 66 million years of Earth's history. And we have a lot of climate variability really throughout the history of Earth, right? So we have these times when, when Earth was still molten and we have really, really hot climates when we really didn't have any life on the Earth. And before we had an explosion of life, we had a snowball earth where the entire earth was, was covered in ice and snow. Um, then we start to see more stability over the last 500, 600 million years or so when life really flourishes and becomes what it is today. Um, as we go through that, we see these swings in climate. 
And what's important to note is we sort of don't drive those. So we see a, a big decrease in global temperatures after the dinosaurs go extinct. And as many people know, you know, that's driven by the asteroid um, crashing into the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and causing this sort of global uh, winter for, for tens of years, if not hundreds of years after the dinosaurs go extinct. And then we have this really warm period from about 66 million years to 34 million years. And over that period of time, we have evidence for palm trees at the poles, for example, and crocodiles at the poles. So all of our evidence suggests that we really don't have any permanent glacial ice um, building up on earth. Uh, we do have these sudden events. So 55 million years ago, there's a really interesting climatic event called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum or the PETM. And what's really interesting about that is it's basically the closest analog we have to today's climate change. So at that event, we're not really sure what causes it. We think that it might have to do with the release of these sort of ice blocks of methane called methane clathrates. So something destabilized those on the ocean shelf and released massive amounts of methane over tens of thousands of years. Uh, and this caused this dramatic increase in global temperatures. Uh, we're talking 15 degrees Fahrenheit and average temperatures, um, which obviously causes all kinds of different climatic shifts in precipitation and wind patterns, uh, global circulation. And at that event, we do have some examples of early mammals. That's when we start to see things like primates, our earliest ancestors, um, the earliest artiodactyls, things related to things like cows and deer and pigs, um, some of the earliest prisodactyls, horses and rhinos. And we can look at that and try to get an idea of how they're adapting to that increase in global temperatures over a really rapid shift in time. And we see that it has a lot to do with body uh, size. So because things get so warm as to not overheat, it looks like a lot of these mammals are actually getting smaller over evolutionary time to deal with those increased temperatures. That gives us sort of a, a parallel to what we might see with today's climate change. But as we go through the Cenozoic, we hit this event 34 million years ago that I work on the Eocene-Oligocene transition, where we see a decrease in global temperatures. Um, and this seems to be maybe not quite as rapid of an event as the PETM, the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. Um, but it's interesting in that we're seeing a lot of tectonic shift. So we have a lot of seaways opening up. So about 45 million years ago, South America um, was connected to Antarctica and that sort of becomes undocked. And when those two continents split, we start to see the formation of the Drake Passage, so deep sea formation. And that starts to create the Antarctic circumpolar current, which flows around Antarctica and sort of inhibits a lot of heat transfer throughout all of the, the global oceans. And it really impacts global temperatures. That's sort of the trend we see in the transition from this really greenhouse world, we, we really don't see ice, to an ice house world that eventually leads to, to mammoths and mastodons and the Pleistocene ice ages. So we see a lot of uh, variability over that time from 34 million years ago to about two and a half million years ago. And two and a half million years ago is what we call the start of the Pleistocene, uh, which is the most, sort of the most recent epic of the fossil record. So from about 2.7 million years ago to about 10,000 years ago. 
And this is where we start to see large megafauna, woolly rhinos and mammoths and mastodons and giant ground sloths um, throughout North America. Um, a lot of that we know is driven, the climate is driven by how the earth is um, rotating around the sun. So we see these really interesting patterns called Milankovitch cycles in the, basically the shape of the orbit, the wobble of earth, the earth's axis and how steeply the earth's axis is pointing towards the sun. And these cycles, which happen alternatively over 26,000 years, 40,000 years and 100,000 years really drive these ice ages where we go from glacials to interglacials and you know, the, the increase in ice sheets, mainly in the Northern hemisphere, um, and then these decrease in ice sheets over these, these cycles. And these, this is the world that mammoths and mastodons you know, were living in. So, so we see sort of migration patterns um, that develop because of that. And we see evolution of mammoths mostly in Eurasia, in Europe and Asia, until they migrate through the Bering Land Strait about a million and a half years ago into North America, um, where we really start to see them populate and evolve. Um, really see two species of mammoth, the woolly mammoth and the Columbian mammoth sort of take over much of North America. So that's sort of the, the setting in which we're looking here is that, that cyclical glacial interglacial um, period of time over the last 2.7 million years ago or so. So this, the setting of this play is, you know, um, the, the background of finding a mammoth, um, you know, carcass really, yeah. uh, well, the bones of it buried in the ice in Alaska, that, that seems like it's actually pretty plausible. It is, yeah, we, we certainly see that. And in fact, we have completely sequenced the mammoth genome because of those specimens. So oh, wow. because they're frozen in ice, it's preserving the original genetic material from those mammoths. So much so that we can look at ancient DNA um, from as far back as a million and a half years ago, because it's been frozen throughout that time. So degradation of that organic material has, has halted. So it's because of finds like those that we can take a look at, at the genome and do things like potentially bring back mammoths <laughs> from extinction, um, which wow. is super exciting. Is that something that's in the works? It is. Yeah. Believe it oh, or not. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yep. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> you know, there are groups that are working on that. And there's another, there's the um, Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, which went extinct more recently. So we're talking over the past hundred years in, in Australia and there are efforts to, to resurrect both of those animals. And I know it's, there's a, it's so complicated as is, you know, a lot of the issues surrounding climate change um, that it's, it's a very long process because we need to figure out, do we want to do this? And if we do, you know, what are the ethical steps that we need to take? How might it change the environments in ways that we may not expect? What are downstream effects of that? So it's, there's a lot of, of questions there that need to be resolved before we actually can see a woolly mammoth roaming, you know, the Siberian steppe. Yeah, and uh, and would that be the first time that, that something like that has ever happened? Yeah, it would be the first time anything would be would have been brought back from extinction. Yeah. Wow, that's intense. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so because of the, um, you know, the, the warming that we're seeing right now globally, um, there has been an, an increase in melting of, you know, glaciers have, has that changed the, the frequency of discoveries? Um, or how has that impacted those discoveries? Yeah. So it is certainly true that particularly in permafrost, where a lot of these discoveries in, in Northern uh, Alaska or Northern Canada or Siberia are being made that as, as ice melts, we're starting to see, you know, more and more um, specimens of extinct animals or animals that had died, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, in some cases, um, be preserved in the ice. And then as that ice melts, if you're in the right place in the right time, you know, we, we do stumble over them. Um, so there was, I believe a couple of years ago, there was an example of a dog, you know, extinct wolf that was found melting from the ice. Uh, there are many examples now of mammoths of all sizes, um, from baby mammoths to, uh, to large adult mammoths um, falling from the ice um, and us collecting them. Uh, of course, you know, it, it's, it's this weird position as paleontologists, often what we're collecting has been encased in rock, right, for millions of years in a lot of cases. So there are a lot of sort of scientific strategies that we have to use when we find them to maintain the condition in which they've been found. Um, so it's not to thaw them completely and lose any information uh, because this is these sort of, you know, are, you know, once in a, although they're becoming more frequent, it's sort of once in a year or once in a decade, fine. Um, but there and are, you, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Do you typically find like um, uh, multiple bones still together or is it just, you know, one piece of a mammoth? Yeah. So oftentimes, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say often, uh, once in a while we find the entire animal. So skin, wow. fur, um, everything. So there was, I encourage anybody who's listening to go take a look at, at maybe if you Google frozen baby mammoth, you know, we'll likely see a picture of uh, um, this juvenile mammoth that was preserved in ice. Uh, you can see all of its skin, the trunk, all of its fur, it's completely intact. Generally, when we're seeing these fossils fall from any kind of permafrost or erode um, from riverbanks, for example, as, as we start to see more melting in the high northern latitudes, um, a lot of those might just be isolated tusks or isolated um, femora, the thigh bone. Um, part of skulls, teeth, that kind of that kind of stuff. And as we're down in you know in North America and, and kind of continental U.S., a lot of what we find are are isolated um, chunks, especially right here in, in uh, North Carolina. So uh, we find oh, so pieces have been found in North Carolina as well. Yeah. Yep, yeah, wow. almost certainly. A lot of them are too fragmentary to say, um, but as far as we know, it's all of the Columbian mammoth. Um, so that was a later descendant of the woolly mammoth that, that didn't quite have its fur as mammoths continued to migrate further south and, and didn't have to combat temperatures that were as cold 
as the high northern latitudes. But yeah, we get every once in a while, we'll get a, a picture of an ID request for a chunk of, of mammoth or mastodon uh, tooth enamel often um, found on the beaches in North Carolina or, or in rivers that cut through sediments of the right age. Hmm. But in addition to that, we're also getting with climate change, you know, a lot of other impacts. So we're seeing drought conditions in Texas, for example, in, in the Southwest. And there was a story that came out just a couple months ago of uh, a river that had not been, been dry in human history, um, completely dry due to drought and exposed dinosaur footprints um, from the early Cretaceous 110 million years ago. Um, so we are seeing more examples of, with changing climate, um, more fossils because of that being exposed in some way. Yeah, that's a really interesting dynamic between those those two fields then. Um, and and when you um, stumble across that, is it really something that's uh, like a profitable find that anybody can just come to a museum or how does that collections process work? Yeah, so this is this is a really tricky question. So as paleontologists, one of our foremost concerns is before we go out to the field, making sure we have permission to collect anything, you know, where we are. So my research is actually in Nebraska and I work on U.S. Forest Service land. So all of the specimens, all the mammal fossils I collect from that Forest Service land, I collect under permit. So the agreement is that every fossil I collect gets brought back to the lab, gets identified, cleaned, studied, and is then placed in an accepted repository, an accepted museum that has the conditions necessary to keep those specimens in perpetuity uh, so that they can be studied further, you know, well into the future. So in whenever, whenever we're going to the field, we need to make sure that we have the permission from the government, from tribal lands in some cases, or from private landowners to collect those specimens. So when we as a museum are going out to collect fossils, we're going out with a scientific agenda. So the idea is that we wanna know more about this event, we wanna know more about this animal. So we do all the background research to know where we can collect fossils of the right age that can tell us more about the evolution of, of this group of animals, for, for example. Um, in this case, you know, there is a lot of question of monetary value and that gets into this, this weird, um, sort of headbutting between scientific value and commercialization of paleontology. And our, our professional society, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, um, when we become members, we have to sign an agreement that we will not sell fossils. And the idea there is we don't want to drive a market for those specimens. We, every specimen has some scientific value um, primarily if we know where it came from in the geologic record and we can link it to how old it is and what the con environmental conditions were uh, at that time. So we can look at evolutionary patterns through time. And if we get to a point where fossils, and this is becoming more and more true, where there is a black market developing for fossils, and you hear this every so often that, you know, a T-Rex has been auctioned off for or $15 million and nobody knows where it goes. And if that goes in private hands, then that's a specimen that, that is lost from, 
from science in a lot of cases. And there's always the risk that when that happens, even if that specimen comes back into the public domain, into museums at some point, that some of the data originally associated with that specimen is lost. So we may not know exactly where it came from. And that geologic context is, is critical in really understanding uh, different aspects about the morphology, the shape of the bones of the, the animal, the evolution of the animal, the environmental conditions at the time in which it lived, which helps us fully understand the evolution. Um, so it, it gets really tricky and it's something that museums wrestle with quite a bit because there are specimens that we don't want lost from the public domain, uh, that we don't want lost to research. So there are plenty of examples, including here at the, the North Carolina Museum where we purchased dinosaurs in this case um, so that we didn't lose them to science um, because those specimens were just that important for our understanding of, of dinosaur evolution and ecology. So it's, it's this really messy um, situation in which you know, we don't want to drive that market. We really ideally don't want to see that market exist, but we understand why it exists, right? People like fossils. And as paleontologists and educators, we want to drive that. You know, it's, it, I really consider it a gateway science because I think <laughs> there's so many of us as, as kids who, I mean, I grew up in the Jurassic Park era. So that was, you know, my enlightening moment where it was like, oh yeah, I want to be a scientist. And that's what drove my interest in paleontology. And, and you know, 20 some years later, I, I am. And we, wanted, we want those hooks to get people interested in science so that even for those who don't go into science, it gives them a route to understand the scientific process and, and how scientists are arriving at conclusions and making recommendations for the future based on data, based on empirical evidence. So, so it's tough. It's, it's really tricky. Um, but there's, I don't think there's any question that, that there is both scientific and monetary value to fossils. And I think one of the things that we see most often is people come with, with rocks, for example, that they're convinced are dinosaur eggs. And the first question before they, they really even get into, you know, is this a fossil? Is, is, does it have any value, you know, and they're speaking monetarily, of course. So we sort of have to take that through a different lens and say, um, hey, in this case, no, it's, you know, it's just a rock. And then there's an argument, <laughs> that, trust me, I, I know what a, you know, a dinosaur egg looks like, sorry, it's, it's not. Um, but there is, you know, this, this importance of, of them understanding if it is scientifically valuable, it is important for it to be in a museum in the public domain where researchers can study it to glean as much information as we can from it. Yeah, thank you so much for giving such a, a nuanced answer to that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, is, it really is. It's amazing. So you were, yeah, you were talking a little bit when um, discussing those other um, climate events of the past. Um, it seems that there's, there's a real um, interlinking in those natural mechanisms that drive climate and the globe seems so interconnected when it comes to that aspect of, of um, you know, of climate. And 
So it, is there now a very clear link between the industrialization of the West and current climate change? Um, would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think there's any question amongst climate scientists that there is a direct link between, between CO2, our carbon dioxide emissions um, from the burning of fossil fuel and the increase in, in this case, global temperatures, but in the long-term change in precipitation patterns, uh, sea level, um, the frequency of large weather events like Hurricane Ian. You know, it's hard for us to, to say that Hurricane Ian got so strong so quickly because of climate change, because that could have happened before climate change, but it's, it's much more likely that it happened because we live in this, this warmer climate than 200 years ago, for example. Um, so when we look at the, the fossil record and the geologic history of climate change, one of the closest ties to temperature is CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. So when we're looking at fossils, for example, as proxies, as these these data that can sort of give us insight into how climate is changing. Um, we, we always see a very close linkage between CO2 concentrations and temperatures. So that's really the, the tightest correlation we see. And when we look at CO2, which we can do through ice cores, for example, um, we can look at these CO2 concentrations and they closely follow global temperatures over the last two and a half million years in, in this case, when we have those, those ice archives um, of climate change. And what we see is we see that predictable pattern. We see this sort of sawtooth pattern of uh, sort of long-term cooling and then relatively quick warming where we get um, melting of, again, primarily those, those Northern hemisphere ice caps. Um, what is concerning to scientists and climate scientists now is the rate in which we're seeing both temperature and CO2 increase. So that rate of increase in particular, starting basically at the industrial revolution um, is so much higher than anything we've seen in all of that glacial interglacial cycle that has been driven by those, those Milankovitch cycles by Earth's orbit around the sun. So we know that this change is out of whack with those cycles of, of Earth's orbit. So that tells us that there's something else there. And pretty clearly, you know, we're, we're dumping, I think it's something like 36 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere on an annual basis. And it's pretty clear that that, that is driving that rapid increase in CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. And, causing all of the climate issues that, that we're starting to see and will continue to see for, for hundreds of years. And the U.S. is, you know, just such a small part of the world when you look at it from a further back perspective. Yes. <laughs> um, but we use so much of its resources, about 25%. So what, what, what should we be doing differently? You know, we, we're talking about trying to be a leader in climate um, when it comes to the, the global stage, but it just seems like we keep on keeping on um, 
without thinking about how we're impacting those other countries and, and the whole world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the politicization of climate change has been a real concern amongst climate scientists because, you know, we, we can take these incremental steps, you know, when the conditions are right politically for, for them to occur. But I think these larger leaps that we need, we know we need to take are increasingly difficult. And it's becoming more and more dire that we do take those. And given that we do, we are responsible for a quarter you know, of the, the resources harvested from the earth. Um, I think it's critical that we, we start to think about those um, on an individual basis as much as possible. I mean, there's only so much that, that one of us can do or a household can do. You know, I think taking small steps to, to higher energy efficiency in your house, um, you know, changing light bulbs to, to energy efficient light bulbs, considering electric vehicles where possible or taking public transportation, I think on an individual level is great. And when we start to add up all of those changes that we might make, you know, we might make some small impact. But so much of that resource use is really in, you know, large corporations. And then, then that's where we have to start to think and get creative about, you know, what do we do in those situations, you know, do we start to think about boycotts? Um, do we start to be at least more concerned about what we're consuming in you know, a very consumer culture? Um, so it's, it's certainly tricky. And I think as, as scientists, we're worried, we're concerned. There's no question. Um, and I, I think there's always the hope that we can be you know, as a species, we have this ingenuity that, that has led us to where we are today. And the hope is that we can use that to start to, to at least capture some of the resource use, carbon capture and, and projects like that, that might help to, to slow things down. But we're at a point where it's getting closer and closer to where that's, that's gonna have less and less effect. So it's, it's concerning. <laughs> There's no question. There's no way to you know, tiptoe around that. Yeah, it seems like it takes a lot more effort to recapture that energy than to just not release it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that that to not release it causes such, you know, it's such a culture change from what we're used to from our day to day that it's it's tough. It really is, even for people who are conscious about climate change and want to make a difference. It goes any change to your daily routine or to what you're used to is, is difficult. It is. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so on a slightly happier topic, yeah. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> um, so this is a, a world premiere play, uh, that we commissioned by Taddy Hennessy. Um, and it seems to me that there are a lot of new works that are starting to come out about this as climate change is becoming, um, more and more important to people over the years. Um, so do you, do you think that art like theater pieces, movies, books, films can um, can have an impact in how people see climate change or, or want to make a difference? And, and do you have any personal examples about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really important to talk about climate change in as many different avenues as possible. I think it's that large of an issue that we're dealing with that as often as we can portray that in the news, in art, um, through 
popular science pieces. I think it's it's critical to get the news out there and to keep hammering away uh, about how much we need to change so as not to <laughs> to destroy the planet, which is sort of on the trajectory that that we're on right now. Um, so I I think you know you see you see a lot of pieces such as film pieces, right? Like I remember when the day after tomorrow came out, which was maybe not as scientifically linked as, as some <laughs> other pieces, but it's sort of, it's an eye-opening um, film. And, you know, the idea is that we are capable of, of changing the environment around us. And I think there's tons and, and tons of evidence for that. Um, I think more recently, I've heard a lot of good things, though I haven't seen it yet, of, of 2040, um, a documentary about sort of one person's crusade to um, to reduce his climate impact. So I, I I think those are really critical to to keep hammering away at at the public eye about how much we need to change the issues we're encountering. Um, and even if the, there is some dramatization to that, I think it's important to, to get that across. And then there, you know, there are other films like um, An Inconvenient Truth. And I think that at the time, you know, was, was very impactful and I think still is. And I think maybe there's less art to those kinds of, of documentaries that are getting sort of nitty gritty on the science. But I think that's important too for for a subset of uh, the populace that that is interested in those types of uh, art pieces, you know, where we're getting into the nitty gritty and how we know what we do know. So yeah, I, I really think it is important. I, it's it's going to become more and more ingrained in climate change in our day to day life that I think getting it out into the public eye now and what in any way possible is really critical. Um, to understand you know, what we might be going through in a in hundred years. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sean. Thanks and for yeah. And I, and I hope that all of you consider joining us for a great big woolly mammoth thawing from the ice, a world premiere by Patty Hennessy. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. This Burning Coal production is sponsored by The Classical Station. Listen at 89.7 FM or online at theclassicalstation.org. Our production of A Great Big Woolly Mammoth Thawing in the Ice will run for one more weekend, October 13th through 16th. For tickets and information, visit us at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001.